This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, we're live. All right, we're live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, everybody. All right, so what happens if stocks fall, bonds don't rally, and commodity prices rise? The answer is it's a real ugly for most investors. 6040 is an all-in bet on disinflationary strong growth. How prepared is your portfolio if we have inflationary weakness? This is going to be one of the many topics that we're going to address today. Um, this is a, a recent tweet by our guest, Bob Elliott, CEO of Unlimited Funds. We're going to get to his thoughts on the tweet many other things. But before we get into it, just a little bit of housekeeping. You know, we're going to talk about all of these topics and um, and we're going to give kind of some some high level understanding of what's going on. But ultimately, everybody here is trying to help uh, everybody out there. And for example, Bob runs an exchange rate of fund. Uh, HFND is the ticker, Unlimited Multi-Strategy Return Tracker ETF. And this is kind of the things that you're going to need to be looking for, right? Non-correlated return streams that are very different from your traditional equities and bonds. And so if you like that, do go check uh, Bob's funds out at unlimitedfunds.com. From the perspective of Resolve, go to investresolve.com. We have a wide variety of solutions there from private pools to public funds to separately managed accounts, including the return stack series. So please do check us out. Um, and now we can get right into it, get Bob's thoughts. Um, let's, uh, let's go. And before we do, let's just remind everyone that nothing we discussed here today should be considered investment advice. This conversation is for entertainment, hopefully, but definitely informational purposes. So with that, we kick it over to Bob. How are you doing, Bob? Hey, how's it going, folks? Good to uh, see y'all. Yeah, welcome. It's, um, this is actually a really timely occasion right i mean we just we just had the fed announce and comment and um they seem to have, have caught markets off guard again any any surprises in jay powell's um talk or in their policy actions or in the so-called dot plots yeah i mean it, it's not just the fed i i like to think that we had sort of a central bank bonanza that we're all recovering from right over the last like 10 days um, where we got ECB, BOJ, BOE, 
Bank of Canada, <laughs> Fed, you know, uh, I mean, plus the Nordics and a few odds and ends in addition. And I think when I when I scan across basically all of those central banks, I think nearly all those banks are basically at a point where they're saying that they've done enough, that they're not particularly uh, they're not particularly urgently moving to additional tightening. They're much more focused on a wait and see approach. And I think that's particularly interesting in the context that none of them are even close to achieving their inflation mandates, right? Basically, all of them need, you know, in one one way or another are are supposed to deliver 2% inflation. And like, take the ECB, they're stopping their hikes at 4%. And inflation is between, you know, five and six, like, like, it's not like, and it's been stable that way, basically, you know, for a while, take the BOE. Core inflation has been stable at 6% for 12 or 15 months, and they're stopping their hiking cycle, right? And so the same, I mean, the Fed is probably a little bit ahead of most others, but still pausing their hiking cycle when it's certainly not clear that inflation is definitely durably going back to their 2% mandate. And if so you anything, sort of, it seems yeah, go ahead. It's been turning up lately, right? I mean, if anything, right, yeah. right. And this has all occurred as oil prices are turning up and energy prices are turning up. And so you're getting, and a lot of that disinflationary impulse that really helped bring, you know, basically took inflation from being at the high single digits to sort of the mid single digits. That's, that's, that's unwinding, right? There was a big inflation, disinflationary impulse. That's, that's behind us, not ahead of us. And so you sort of add that all up. And I look at this market and I say to myself, well, is is it you know, is there a possibility that the bigger mistake these central banks will be making is that they stopped too early? Like, is that the biggest mistake and the thing we should be worried about, much more so than did they tighten a little too much and are we going to get an economic some economic weakness? Yeah. And so I think you, you know what the this <laughs> well, that inspired a lot of comments. Oh my God, I can't wait. Everybody out of my way. <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. Um, I, I was just wondering, you know, if if we were to compare this to the, the 60s, 70s, and maybe that's not the right analog, but, you know, it, it does remind me in some ways of McChesney Martin in the late 60s. And he paused and he, and he had a sort of mini panic because they did observe not just um, inflation gauges rolling over, but some credit gauges rolling over and other economic um, metrics. And so put the brakes on vastly too soon. And then, of course, we saw the real surge in inflation. And it's, you know, we've seen UPS with just a massive increase in compensation for their drivers. We've got this UAW negotiation going on that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of auto workers. And these are just the ones that we see. Like, are we, are we starting to now see dynamics become entrenched just as the Fed is, is becoming more sanguine that things are going to turn out okay? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the 60s analogy um, because if you when you turn to the 70s, you got some of the issues with the, you know, like oil prices went up 5X, like that's not happening right now. And 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 that had a lot of second, and it was after a period of 15 years where inflation was sort of let to run a little too hot uh, for a little too long. And so I think that the, the second half of the 60s and that 60s period is actually a good one. Income driven expansion, um, not much credit orientation. Inflation remains a little too high for a little too long. And then, of course, an important recognition that I think connects well today is, you know, you have, uh, you know, 
a foreign foreign war that we're in part paying for expansionary fiscal policy at that time it was both war related policy as well as domestic spending you know we have sort of a lot of the similarities there and i think the key lesson at that point was um you know the fed just didn't get ahead of the inflationary dynamic they sort of they sort of were building off of the dis- i mean the obviously the very disinflationary 30s and then even you know the po- post war period in the 50s was quite quite um you know quite quite boring in that sense after we sort of resolved the post war issues um and and sort of the you know the expectation was well this won't really be a big deal we can we can run huge government budget deficits we can run monetary policy that's not particularly tight in the fla- in the face of you know moderately rising inflation or elevated inflation mm-hmm. and it'll be okay and then you know it wasn't okay um and so i think that's actually a great analogy in terms of where we are right now less a like less of a burns moment uh and more like a 60s moment yeah so one of the a mcchesney moment we got you and i should probably start uh pitching that on twitter uh see if uh we can get people to pick that up but it's a mcchesney moment (laughs) but really it's it's interesting because the uh the paper that the imf came out with the uh, 100 stylized uh or the 100 inflation shocks seven stylized facts does a good job of summarizing kind of the big moving parts here and the big issues that the Fed has, right? Which is, or any central bank, which is when to stop, what has happened historically when you stop too early. Um, I know you tweeted about this, Bob, like what are your thoughts on, on, you know, using historical analogs, broadly speaking, where the, where the uh, central bank in Europe is or uh, in, in the UK is versus the U S and, and what mistakes are they making? Well, look, that, what, I mean, what that paper shows, which, you know, I think um, anytime you're looking at those circumstances, the value is not in like the precise numbers, right? The value is in understanding the linkages uh, in terms of how things work. And, and and the thing that I found the most interesting in that paper, the gist was that uh, if you ran monetary, if you had inflation shock of some sort, and you ran monetary policy, like largely consistent with the Taylor rule in one form or another, you basically resolved your inflation problem, you know, in relatively short order. And if you run monetary policy that is, you know, more dovish than the Taylor rule, then, you know, your inflation problem doesn't get resolved uh, in in the near term. And so, you know, take a look at what the U.S. and other central banks have done, like the fact that they relate to the game. You know, all of that points to the fact that they uh, did not run policy sufficiently tight in response to that shock. And, you know, we're sort of paying the price for that right now, which is that, uh, you know, the inflation dynamic is a lot more entrenched than it would have been otherwise. I think the thing that is super interesting about that paper is that often people will say that there's a trade-off. You don't want to tighten too hard because you might slow growth and that might cause, you know, an economic weakness, an undesirable economic weakness. But the thing that that paper actually shows is that if you run monetary policy consistent with the Taylor rule and you tighten relatively aggressively, your medium term growth outcomes are actually better than if yeah. you're late, if you tighten less than the Taylor rule and you let your inflation problem be unresolved. And so that's what, you know, that's what got me. That was what, what's really interesting about that. right. It's just counterintuitive. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's, it's um, the thing that drives, you know, you have the thing that drives medium to longer term growth outcomes is stability, right? 
you know, productive productivity, productivity benefits from stability, stability. The biggest thing that undermines stability is inflation. And so in that sense, the sort of linkages that you see are relatively straightforward. And I think, you know, there's just a lot of nervousness that, you know, you might have a a growth problem, you know, the tightening might lead to a growth problem in sort of an immediate sense and not appreciating what that means over five or 10 years. What do we, what do you make of the very substantial backup in rates after Powell announced, you know, um, the bond market clearly was not taking a great deal of confidence in, uh, in Powell's statement, right? And, and then they backed up again overnight and, and now we're at, you know, at or near new highs for the cycle. I think we're at, you know, new 15 or 18 year highs or something in the 10 year rate. Um, is the bond market saying that the Fed should not be done here? That in fact, inflation, long-term inflation risks are higher than the Fed, the Fed is giving credit to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like sort of, uh, Speaking like an old man, I remember when bond yields were above five, you know, like, <laughs> holy crap, we've forgotten. <laughs> like, like bond yields can be above five. Like it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not like a physical and, rule of the universe. Yeah. Right. And, and like everything is, can be okay <laughs> with bond yields above five. Right. Like, like that, you know, we had that, uh, not just like in our lifetimes in our professional lifetimes and not that long ago. Uh, I, I think the thing that you're basically seeing in terms of the dynamics in the in the bond market is you know the the worst counterintuitively the worst thing for bonds long end duration today is the fed uh stopping their hiking cycle right the best thing for bonds is the fed hiking aggressively and so that's basically what we're seeing is the fed is the fed and other central banks have basically said look we're done on the hiking side hiking side like short rates aren't going any higher and you know We'll we'll just wait the sucker out. And I think basically what people are starting to recognize is, okay, well, what that means in conjunction with the fact that we haven't gotten inflation back down durably, you know, clearly durably to target is that that risk of long term elevated inflation, the probabilities of that go up in that instance, which means that. Um, that bond yields are selling off. And of course, there's some flows issues related to U.S. bond yields. But in the short term, I think that's basically the internet market action that we're seeing is that very, very classic bear steepening in response to a central bank just not being tight enough in response to the underlying economic conditions. And we saw follow through on that, too, on the Japanese inflation numbers and the BOJ. Yeah, I mean, the BOJ, I mean, I, you know, Japan's in a different bit of a different circumstance. If anything, they could probably benefit from a little bit of inflation and their inflation problem is, you know, more like in the three to four range versus, you know, if you look at Europe, you're in the five to six. If you're in the UK, you're in the sixes and above, um, you know, so, you know, the Japanese situation, like for I for the whole year, basically, I I keep telling people like, look, yeah, sure. Running, you know capping rates at, at an extremely low level doesn't make much sense, which they mostly have dealt with. But like the like Bank of Japan is not going to get on the move in terms of tightening anytime soon. Like the economy is still depressed, inflationary. You know, you, you still have a, a big hangover from decades of deflation. You still have that mindset in place. Inflation isn't nearly as high as a, in other economies. Like 
Japan's going to take this easy. Uh, and I think some people thought Ueda was going to come in and just totally wreck the place. And, you know, that was a bad trade. And and instead, uh, you know, he's just sort of cautiously, very, very modestly tightening a little bit uh, in that economy, which is mostly what it what's appropriate for it. If it gets if yeah, it's the upper bound, right, um, for the yeah. first time in decades. So, um, you know, they're clearly acting. They're, they're signaling that they're ready to act should inflation get uncomfortably high. But there's there's no reason to, to think that it is. But, but it's fine. Three percent inflation in Japan. Get. Right. They've been good. Really what they needed. Begging for really what they've been hoping for. Right. That's right. Historically, they've been begging for. But to maybe double click on the U.S. for a second. So some of the estimates I saw, you know, as per like the Taylor rule of where Fed fund rates should be right now, given all the other variables, would be somewhere in the seven, seven and a half percent range. Uh, this seems to be or at least he would want us to believe that this is Powell 2.0, that this is not the pivot Powell of October 2018, that, <laughs> that, 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 that this is a new Powell that is very serious about inflation, all of his latest, like the, the uh, Jackson Hole appearance and his short and focused speech said that his eye was still on the ball. Obviously, they know all the historical precedents, they know of the uh, McKesnick, uh, McChesnick or whatever, whatever the reference that you guys just use, or the Arthur Burns. McChesney, McChesney. McChesney, yeah. McChesney. That's, that, <laughs> that's the gentleman. And so given that they know all these historical precedents and they know and they can calculate the Taylor rule, what do you think is keeping them from actually moving? Is it just political expediency? I mean, they're 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 de facto uh, uh, beholden, even though they have political, uh, uh, you know, legal independence. Uh, from government, at the end of the day, they continue to be an arm of the U.S. government. No, no, I don't. I don't. I, I really strongly believe that there's not a political in any like partisan or or any sense related to that in terms of of, of the Fed. I think you know they're 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 more controlled by like uh, longer term great principles of life. Like uh, Volcker uh, often said, you know the. The, the 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 threats the the threats to raising interest rates too high are always obvious right you know the you're you're always concerned it's always clearer the concern the concerns about tightening are always much clearer than the concerns about not tightening enough and i think that's basically what they're experiencing and, and i actually think it's um uh this mcchesney moment thing i think i'm i'm really like digging on that because i think that actually is a really really good corollary that you have to think about how central banks fight inflationary periods as like a psychological dynamic. And they almost always do behave in basically the same way, which is there's an inflation shock. They're behind the curve. They think it's transitory. They're behind the curve. They tighten a reasonable amount, but not quite enough because they're concerned about growth. Right. And then they sort of do this interplay where they're, you know, they tighten a little bit more and then that's not quite enough, you know, growth slows and then they'll get a little worried and they sort of go back and forth. And that creates this sort of inflation meandering up the curve over a period of time. And then at some point you get to a point where the distance, the, the state destabilizing effects of the inflation become so acute that it, that it's obvious, it becomes obvious to everyone that it makes sense to fight the inflation and not worry too much about growth, even though you know that it's going to be a growth problem. But to get to that point, it's, you know, like it can take a very long time. And even, I mean, even the Volcker situation, I, I always like to, to remind people of this, like Volcker fought 
uh, inflation and then gave up uh, two times before he finally succeeded in the span of three years. So like, you know, even Volcker, who's like the best, you know, who had the the biggest mandate to fight inflation, who goes down in central bank history as the greatest central banker in the history of time. Like, yeah, he also screwed it up a few times. Right. Uh, So that gives you a sense. Yeah, he he struck out twice, and or he had two two balls, and finally hit it out of the ballpark in the right. third try. Um, so to that, you may or may not be able to answer this question from our listeners. This is from Panoramic London. Um, where does Bob think the Fed funds should go to bring core PCE to the Fed's target at two percent? And before you do answer that, though, I uh, you know everybody that's listening here, Panoramic, you everybody. Please do, you know, smash that like button, that subscribe button. It does help us bring amazing guests like Bob to our channel. And um, also don't forget that we do um, these types of things for uh, educational purposes. But we also have a business. Bob has an amazing ETF uh, at unlimitedetfs.com. If you want to visit us, um, you can go to investorsall.com. And I'll just address one thing that's been coming up quite a bit, I think. You know, our, our public products and Bob's public products sometimes are seen as, you know, very difficult to put into portfolio to make some room in your portfolio in order to uh, make it work. You know, it feels like you're taken away from returns and equities and bonds. But as Bob alluded to in one of his previous tweets, if they have a similar sharp ratio long term, then you should not care. Uh, but if you do care about short term underperformance, um, you, I think, would benefit from going into return stacked.com. Um, this is a, a kind of a dedicated website that talks about ways that you can create capital efficiency using public ETFs and mutual funds so that you can make room in your portfolio, keep your traditional core bond holdings, and then stack funds like um, Bob's funds on top and, uh, of course, the things that we do. So please do check out any one of those websites, all of them, and, uh, and now we can get back to a regu- regularly scheduled programming. Panoramic London asking, where does Bob think Fed funds should go? to bring core PCE to Fed target at 2%. What are your thoughts, Bob? Yeah, well, I, I think the the, the question, I, I, I won't try and dodge the question, because I, I think part of it is like, I, I, I probably wouldn't even think about Fed funds. Like, it's not that interesting at this point because the, the Fed's not going to bring Fed funds anywhere uh, beyond where roughly it is today or maybe 25 basis points more anytime in the near future. So it's like, you know, the Fed's dead. Um, so then let's talk about what actually has to happen to to bring core PCE down, which is you have to have, uh, you know, the, the main issue is that there's too much wage growth. Wages in the U.S. are growing at five to six percent. Productivity growth in the U.S. is about zero. The same is basically true in Europe and the U.K., where you have zero productivity growth and wages that are growing at five, six, seven in the U.K., even eight percent, depending on how you measure it. So that's really the gap is too too high a nominal wage growth relative to productivity growth that creates structural inflation. And so how do you break that? Well, you've got to create easing in the labor markets. How do you create easing in the labor markets? Well, to do that, you've got to slow down demand um, relative to the capacity. Well, how do you slow down demand? Well, you got to get people to start saving more of their income and spending less of their income. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to get asset prices down to start changing that choice between spending and savings. And so the thing that's really going to create the durable decline to the 2% PCE rate is getting a a meaningful turn in the cycle, which is going to require a a shift in asset prices, not not really short rates. Short rates aren't going to move 
much from here. It's really about the asset prices. And um, I, I was saying on on Twitter uh, yesterday, just kind of like trying to work through, you know, where does where's the peak of bond yields look like and what's necessary to bring the, the cycle down. I think we're probably going to need bond yields into the fives to get enough of an equity market softening to change, you know, to start to create a tipping of the cycle down in that sort of uh, self-reinforcing uh, negative type dynamic. Um, and so, and how are we going to get that move in the bond yields? Well, you know, it's going to be a market tightening. It's not going to be a Fed tightening. It's going to be a market tightening. And that's kind of how this is going to play out is bear steepening market-based tightening affecting, you know, affecting asset prices. And that creates the the dynamic to get us to to bring inflation down. I love that. You know, that that's the first time I've heard someone clearly say that, um, there's the implicit target of the Fed is to lower asset prices in order to put pressure on household balance sheets and I guess corporate balance sheets to a, a, a different kind of extent to get people a little bit less enthusiastic about spending and more enthusiastic about saving. Um, I mean, we know that we still have a lot of leftover residual in demand deposits from where government deposited funds directly into people's bank accounts to make up for lost income during the COVID um, lockdowns. And we continue to see deficits running in the 6 7% range. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, we're going to see 6 to 9% annual budget deficits about as far as the eye can see. So, you know, in the face of such a major fiscal tailwind, in your mind, does that mean that the Fed's job is even harder and they're going to have to get more aggressive either with um, their QT operations, with higher rates or current rates for much longer than people expect, or maybe changing the composition of their QT, maybe shifting into, into selling mortgages outright or some other type of action in order to get markets to react to the extent that they need to in order to get the consumer less confident and and uh, less likely to spend? Yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways, um, the Fed being dead also, you know, it goes to short-term interest rates. It also goes to the to, to quantitative tightening. Like, I, you know, I don't really under, I don't understand why the Fed seems to be uh, like having a brain blockage about flexibly using quantitative tightening. Like, you know, those of us who traded through the 2010s, like quantitative easing went up, it went down. Like, you know, went, I mean, like hundreds of billions of dollars on an annualized pace. We did twists. We did all sorts of, innovative, interesting things that created flexibility when, you know, interest rates were around zero and the Fed needed that flexibility to implement monetary policy. And like we get to today and it's like QT 95, that's it. Like, you know, we're never going to talk about it again. It's just, it's, it's like the, the problem we have today, I like to say, we don't have an, a, a, a price of credit problem. Like price of credit has gone up. People have stopped borrowing. But yet the economy continues to persist. We have an asset price problem. If you have an asset price problem, sell the assets, right? Yeah. Do something more in terms of selling the assets. But they won't do it. And I don't know why. And I think they're just like scared of some liquidity thing. And it's pretty bad. It, like this is, a, this is a real error on their part, not using that flexibly. But what it does do is it means that, you know, in many ways, Janet Yellen is uh, back in her old role. 
And the reason why I say that is because she controls duration supply these days. She can figure out whether there's going to be more or less duration supply. And she's essentially doing QT over the course of the next couple quarters in a way that the Fed, for whatever reason, isn't doing it. And so I think that's probably how this plays out, a combination of sort of just generalized market-based tightening and then Janet Yellen increasing duration supply from the Treasury is going to create that pressure on, on bond prices and on asset prices and create that turn in the cycle. And that's kind of, you know, we've seen a little bit of it and it's hard, you know, the, these flows from the Treasury are going to be so big that, um, you know, that it's going to be, it's it, it. You're gonna actually have to see the flows to impact the price. No one can front run the magnitude of this in the same way. No one could really front run QE when it started. No one can really front run this. And I, I was reading a tweet uh, uh, earlier today where 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 uh, where someone mentioned you know talking to a, a big bond CIO and he he said there's just too many bonds coming. They're just there's all these bonds. They just keep coming. I can't I can't buy all these bonds. They just keep coming. And I think that's basically, you know, that's where we're at right now. So, so can we, Is the Treasury providing cover on that for, for the Fed in any way? Like, Bob, do, do you think that, that there's co- coordinated action taking place here? And could you see the Treasury trying to provide cover to some degree? The Fed has played bad cop for a while. Now there's a change in the uh, preference for duration. Is there a chance because she sat in that seat and because we, we we have heard central banks clamoring for more help from fiscal for so many years, is fiscal finally uh, heeding the calls? Well, I mean, duration supply is picking up mostly because the Treasury is constrained in terms of their ability to, like, not supply duration. And so, um, I, you know, I providing think cover. I mean, is it providing? I, I don't know. I don't think there's much well, coordination about that, though, Bob. What do you mean the Treasury is constrained in their ability to not supply duration? Well, why, is well, that? why it, couldn't it, they substantially alter the mix of bills versus coupon issuance? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing is they didn't supply duration because we were at the the um, at the debt ceiling, right? So, I mean, we were like yes. legally yeah. could you know required not to supply duration, and then. What happened was, you know, they they drew down the TGA and then refilled it with the bill issuance. But now at this point, bills are basically at at the um, it's not it's not a statutory decision. It's a strategic decision in terms of, um, you know, bills shouldn't be more than 22 percent or whatever the number is. Like the long term sort of historical. Yeah, the long the long term guidance that exists right. from the technocrats in terms of the the composition of the debt market and so that's really what's happening here is that the government's running you know meaningful deficits they've basically hit their cap on bills and so now they basically have to issue the duration and so in some ways like i don't want to call it it's lucky that um that this is how it's worked out but it is fortuitous that at a time when we still need some uh, asset price weakness in order to achieve the the overall economic mandate of the Fed, the Treasury happens to be supplying it. I mean, the frank reality is I bet the Fed would have preferred that the Treasury supplied this duration a year ago and tightened up things, you know, a year earlier. So inflation Why wouldn't wasn't the Treasury also have preferred this, given they would have been issuing duration at rates that were two or three percent below. You know, if you're if you're able to issue 10 or 20 year maturities at two or three percentage points lower, 
that that adds up dramatically too in terms of fiscal accruals, right? So, you know, it seems like they had an opportunity a year and a half ago to issue a lot more duration at much lower rates and at a time when that duration would have been really helpful because it would have further lowered asset prices and probably bolstered the Fed's actions as they're trying to fight inflation. You know, it seems like a dollar, what is it, a day late and a dollar short now? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I like mean, they're out of sync. Well, I mean, what's the what's the real thing? Like, there, you know, don't, there was a time when interest rates were at zero for, you know, 10 years. And we yeah, exactly. A lot oh, yeah. better borrowing. You know, this is like the Larry Summers argument, which I always uh, thought was compelling, which is like if interest rates are at zero, like borrow you know, till the cows come home and just build all sorts of productive capacity and infrastructure and all that in, in the economy. And instead, I mean, this is, you know, like the road, the road outside my house, they're like basically doing some sort of meaningless cosmetic set of work related to the infrastructure bill. And, you know, at a time when the unemployment rate is like three and a half percent, like why are we building roads when the unemployment rate is three and a half percent? Like what an incredible waste. Um, but you know, that's how the, I mean, at some level, that's how the government works. And, you know, I think, I think what I'd say is maybe not, that's how the government works. I think we have transitioned which is why I think the sixties is a good, is a good uh, uh, corollary to a world where we have more proactive fiscal policy than reactive fiscal policy. Those of us, you know, who grew up in the 90s and the 2000s in terms of thinking about these things, you know, fiscal policy was essentially responsive to what was going on rather than and, and cushioning it rather than proactive. But we have now, uh, you know, a proactive, like second half of the 60s style fiscal policy environment where you sort of have to think about fiscal policy as a proactive force in the, in the overall economy and markets in a way that really until you know, this year you, you hadn't had to, it's kind of a rant about uh, (laughs) zero interest rates and investment, but there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Oriented signals are not indicating that investors are starting to wake up to the potential for a much more sustained inflationary impulse. Right. I mean, you've got the bond market, the bond market seems at least, you know, nominal rates seem to be um, accelerating maybe in in their recognition. But, you know, we still see long-term inflation, market-based long-term inflation expectations stuck around that sort of um, high two, very low three range. What's it going to take to see those expectations budge? Oh, I mean, it, it, you know the the market um the market and particularly let's say long only bond managers th- th- it feels a lot like um it feels a lot like 2011 now i don't know 2010 2011 i don't i don't know how uh, acutely that is in your mind but um the reason why i say that is um at, at that time uh you know obviously we were having a, a deleveraging environment which was different from a traditional, a more traditional cyclical environment, but nonetheless, you had basically V-shaped recovery keep getting priced in to the short rate market, right? It's so like actually the greatest trade of all time was like long bonds against that V-shaped uh, recovery because we essentially had an L recovery, you know, for a really long time, right, for ten years, and so if it 
it feels a lot like that, which is like um, at that time, you know, investors in their whole careers had only known basically cyclical down, cyclical up, cyclical down, cyclical up in the same way sort of bond investors today kind of only know 2% inflation, right? They only know sort of a negative relationship, a negative correlation between stocks and bonds and a 2% inflation number. Sometimes, you know, people ask me why, why is breaking inflation just stuck at 2%? And I, I say, well, I think the answer is that the Modelers just typed in 2% and like for hard coded the number in the Excel, like they forgot that it could possibly be different. You know? No, that's, so that's, that's, that's pull on that thread. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> right? no, let's pull on that thread on the tips because I, I, you know, you hear these commentators talking about how, how tips have, you know, quite a low predictive power historically for actual inflation. And it really is just a non arbitrage relationship. Uh, and so, do you subscribe to that? Do you find tips a compelling way to forecast inflation, or are you on the camp that tips are just you know another uh, another instrument and, and, and variable to gauge what currently would be the break even, but not necessarily a, a, a strong predictive uh, variable for for forecasting inflation? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use tips to and break even inflation implied by tips to forecast inflation, um, like at all. It's it's an asset market. It's a tradable asset market. And you can start to think about what drives those assets and what's what's priced in. It's very useful to understand what's priced in. That's very, very useful to do that. And you can trade against it in the same way, you know, you wouldn't necessarily rely too much on the short rate curve to tell you exactly what was going to happen to monetary policy, because I was, certainly you wouldn't in the last 18 months, because uh, I mean, how many times is the short rate curve going to think that there's going to be Four to six hundred basis, you know, four hundred basis points of uh, of cuts, and then get disappointed. I mean, you'd think like a toddler would learn after you know two or three times of this mm-hmm. that that uh, you know their their expectations haven't come true. But now, you know, I guess those short rate traders still think that uh, still keep hoping for the cuts to come along. <laughs> it's a misinterpretation of these variables, right? If you think about it, that there's a liquidity. Uh, component to tips and that signaling mechanism was broken to some degree to the extent that tips became target of of QE at one point and became part of the Fed's balance sheet. But so when you look across the asset class landscape, what do you think are the the most egregiously mispriced asset classes versus your expectations for inflation? So maybe bonds are starting to catch up. Do you think equities are catching up? They've been selling off for a couple of days, but they seem to be still you know pretty high uh, versus uh, other historical periods with inflation, and then if you can bleed into the uh, a commentary around uh, commodities, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, too. right, right. Well, I was going to say, I think if you look across assets, um, you know, where are the biggest mispricings? Well, I think we've got um, we still have a meaningful, uh, a very low term premium. Something I was writing about yesterday. Um, and you know, we're probably still hundred ish basis points below what sort of a, even like kind of a normal ish term premium is, uh, that we should expect, uh, along bonds and, and, and that term premium, it's very important because it kind of affects everything. Like it's the reason why five-year tips look better than 30-year tips. It's the reason why, you know, bills look better than 10-year bonds. And frankly, it's part of the reason why equities don't look that great relative to cash is because that term premium exists in all financial assets. And so 
Um, so term premium doesn't seem right. We still, you know, we've moved, we've moved to some extent off the bottoms, but there's still, I think, probably a ways to go on that. And and particularly like that intersects with the flows dynamic related to the supply of bonds, because it's one thing if this bond supply is constrained with a low term premium that you can keep clearing the market at that price. But the problem is if you're trying to issue a whole bunch of bonds, when the value essentially is very poor, like how do you get the next, you know, the the guy who stuffed IR impossible, it was the Ackman tweet um, from earlier today, like the, the, the bond, the long only bond manager is stuffed to the gills with bonds. So how do you get people like you, like, like, like the four of us, when are you going to buy bonds? Right. Yeah. I'm not interested in buying bonds now, but I'm going to need to buy bonds, you know, they're five and a half. I'm certainly, you know, interested in the market. Anyway, that's a long, so, so, I, so no, I meandered off your original question, which I can get back no, to. No, no, no. I do want to take this step by step because <laughs> I think a lot of the, a lot of the times when people who follow you and Bridgewater and, you know, everybody that, that looks at markets and then what's priced in, they don't understand how you price things, right? Like, what, what do you mean it's not priced in? There's a price that's out in the market that's supposed to be correct. And there's the price that I believe to be true. So you mentioned a couple of interesting things. You said term doesn't seem right. So I, I let me try to translate, and then you can tell me where I'm wrong. When you say that, you mean like relative to history, the the price of like term premium should be X, and right now it's X minus that, and we need to get back up to that long term average. Is that am I right in the first uh, assertion? Yeah, yeah. I, the the basic observation like that. Right. The basic point. Just just think about it very simply. Like. There is um, cash has no risk. Uh, lending your money out has has risk, even against a person, an entity that will for sure pay you back. Right? There's there's interest rate risk, and so in order to 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 do that, and you're parting with your money for some period of time, right? And so you'd expect to get more in the future than you get today if you part with your money and you lend it to somebody. Yeah. Um, you know that at some level that's a very it's simple observation, yeah. Yeah. but but what that means is, okay, so how does that work? You're, the yield the yield that you're getting on cash um, necessarily is lower than uh, the yield that you should get on longer dated instruments because you'd expect to get a higher yield to, be, to incentivize you to lend out your cash for that term. Now, of course, you have to think about that in the context of what is the expected path of cash relative to those long and interest rates. And so it's not just like literally the yield curve defines what that looks like. But if you start to think about like, okay, well, you know, we expect maybe a very modest easing of of monetary policy. So the expected forward yield of cash is still pretty elevated, frankly. And then what you look at is those bond yields that are trading at a you know 100 basis points below cash, you start to say to yourself, well, it's, you know, what am I getting for giving my my money for 10 years? And the answer is not much. In fact, maybe even negative, a negative return still at this point. Okay. And so, so, so let me not, let me, no, 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 no. My, I, 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 I just want to make sure I understand. So you have that, so you have, that's one thing, right? That that's differential. And now we also have the added element of um, there's a bunch of supply coming in from the treasury and other places, right? So like, is th- this, there's one thing to say that's un- it's undervalued, you know, equity markets have been overvalued for a decade. The other qu- thing is when is it going, when is there going to be a catalyst in order for that to turn around? Right. And right. I, and, and, and that really, you know, what it comes down to is, um, is, you know, there's, there's uh, value, 
which really, if you think about term premium, that's a value concept. And then there's, you know, supply and demand at any one moment. And so you have to think about who are the buyers and who are the sellers at that any one moment and and also start to think about not just their incremental buying and selling, but their balance sheets. Um, and so if you're a long only, you know, if you're a pension fund or an endowment or stuff like that, and you you went hog wild for those 350 yields that were being offered earlier in this year, like you've, you know, not only have, have you probably fill, gotten your fill on how many bonds you're holding, but also you're a little burned by that, uh, by having lost, you know, 10 to 15% on that trade. And so, you know, you're starting to th- like, okay, so then who, who are the, the folks who are going to come in and buy the bonds? Like, I know that sounds like such a simple point, but it's like, where are the people that buy the bonds? Like, if you look back in the last 10 years, who bought the bonds? The Fed? Well, they're selling now. Foreign central banks? Well, they're selling now. Big, large money, long dated, you know, pension funds, real money type accounts? Well, they're stuffed to the gills with bonds. Like, who is going to buy the bonds? Like, that's the question. And the answer is, you know, it's tough to find the person who's going to buy the bonds. And the way that gets resolved is just through a mere, through a mis, uh, a repricing. Maybe just or reprice financial the, repression, right? Which is the re- Russell Napier's hypothesis that we are going to live through a period of financial repression like uh, we had uh, in the early to mid 20th century, and and financial institutions are going to be required to own more bonds. You know, whether it's insurance and reinsurance companies, you know, regulation shifts uh, in order to provide cover for for government. So I wouldn't be surprised, but. I, I did want to kind of, but, but the way, but that, said, but, but the way that that it's important to recognize on that. Uh, also, IR impossible. Thank you for uh, your running commentary. Also, banks were buying bonds, got burned by it, and have been forced to reduce their duration, not increase their duration, in order to reduce their regulatory, you know, the regulatory risk that they have on their balance sheet. So they're not buying bonds anytime soon. I think the most the 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 most important thing when you think about that story, which is financial oppression, sure, but not that useful to trade markets. Not that useful to trade markets. I'll tell you why that is. Is because there's an ordering of financial repression, right? It's like folks who say, well, eventually the Fed's going to have to print. Yeah, sure, eventually the Fed's going to have to print. But how are we going to get to a point where the Fed has to print? First, the yields rise. Then the economy suffer. You know, then asset prices suffer. Then the economy suffers. Then those interest rates are unacceptable and there's steps taken to bring those interest rates down. But the ordering matters a ton, right? Don't get caught thinking that a recession, sure, I bet a recession will happen in the next two years. Almost for certain, there will be an Enver, you know, marked recession in the next two years. But that doesn't mean this is the time to buy bonds because first the yields have to rise, then the assets prices fall, then it becomes interesting to buy bonds. That's the ordering. And so repression, sure, maybe it'll come someday. I don't, you know, in the life of a of a trader who's trading in, in a sort of two, three, four, five, six month time frame, I, I don't really care. Like does you know, we'll get to that point when we Fair get enough. to yeah. But to, to, to get a little bit of more clarity, um, I just want to okay. clarify, when you talk about a mispricing across the U.S. Treasury term structure of 100 base points, that's on average. So I guess, is that a growing mispricing the longer you go out on that duration curve? So it's it's mispriced maybe 
30 to 50 basis points on the shorter end. And then that mispricing grows, uh, obviously, because of reinvestment risk and, and, and duration risk and that sort of thing as you go out on the term structure. Is that an accurate? Yeah, well, I mean, just, it's a relatively uh, uh, homogenous across the curve. I mean, the real like the real uncertainty. Now we're going to get into some of the the nooks and crannies of uh, of bond market mechanics or whatever. But like the real uncertainty in the bond market that anyone really trades on is within the first 10 years. Like, you know, what's going to be the interest? What's going to be the interest rate? You know, the 10 year interest rate 20 years forward. Like no one knows, you know, that yeah, and no one's really changing their view on it. Right. Because you there's no reason to change the view on it. And so. Mm-hmm. Really, all of the bond market dynamics, uh, price dynamics, even out on the on the long end, are really mostly driven by what's happening in those first ten years, and um, and so that's why, like, you know, you could get overcomplicated. Like, look at the ten year term premium; it's close enough. It's basically the thing that matters to the bond market, and that's the thing that's basically, you know, right now it's like zero when it should be like at least a hundred basis points. Gotcha. Fair enough. Um, now I lost what well, I had something. Okay, well, I have a question that, that it kind of ties into what we were discussing last week with uh, PJ Pierre, which is the contention from, like, I think he's a, he comes from the school of modern monetary theory, Warren Mosler. And one of the things that he said was that the reason, one of the major reasons that might be driving inflation is the fact that we're increasing interest rates because we're getting to a point where the the sa- the money coming into the economy from savings of those interest rates are much larger than the expenses of the economy, and so you know the, this is and this was the first time I've heard something like this. It was an interesting point. What are your thoughts on that thesis on that that approach? That in fact the Fed raising rates is a bad idea. That rates don't matter, and raising rates will mean you know more savings, more spending, more inflation. Yeah, well, I I I think. Um, there's sort of like you can sort of like think about that problem conceptually. And of course, you know, to the extent that there's higher interest rates, uh, you know, debtors are paying creditors higher yields, uh, you know, higher income, essentially. Um, and and that, that like core connection or or, or uh, uh, linkage is true. But I think you've got to think about and really add up and quantify all those pieces to really understand what the incremental effect is. Like the, the way that interest rates affect the economy um, in f- first is through the repricing of credit. And if you look at how that's transpired, this hasn't been an extreme credit cycle for sure. It hasn't been a big credit cycle, nothing like, you know, the dynamic in, in 2008 or whatever like that. Um, but, you know, you have seen, credit slow from running at a trillion, trillion and a half a year to close to zero now. Okay, well, that's a drag. Um, And then you think about, you know, those borrowers who are incrementally paying. So that's incremental borrowing has slowed. So do interest rates affect incremental borrowing? Like, yes, they affect incremental borrowing. It matters a fair amount. If you look at what's going on with the debtors, like on the margin, debtors are paying higher interest rates. It's taking a little bit of time because a lot of stuff was termed out and fixed rate and all that stuff. And what do you get there? Well, like essentially the way that that works is that debtors um, uh, are, you know, ha- typically have a higher marginal propensity to spend than do savers. And so while it's true, you might have a trans, you, you do have a transfer of higher payments from debtors to creditors. 
given the fact that the creditor's marginal propensity to spend is typically lower on the margin, even if it's a dollar for dollar transfer, that's a growth negative rather than a growth positive. You know, that's the the one outlier on that, of course, is the government that essentially in the U.S. case is unconstrained, right? Their spending is unrelated to their borrowing, uh, which is an important fact to consider. And so there, I think you, you don't, I mean, you just want to quantify what's the government paying out in terms of incremental income? Who is it going to? The vast majority, I mean, look, the vast majority of entities that hold U.S. treasuries are the Fed, foreign central banks, and, you know, real real asset managers, right? Like pension funds, endowments, and stuff like that. What are they doing with the higher income? Nothing. Like, just to be very clear, nothing. They're buying more financial assets, and that's supporting the overall financial asset environment. But like how many people are actually earning so much more income that it's meaningfully affecting their their spending and economic behavior? And I think the answer is like not really not. I, I you know, and you have to weigh that against. I, oh, I should also say the last thing is, of course, higher interest rates affect asset prices because they increase the discount rate that flows into all these asset prices, as we've seen in the last couple of days or whatever. And so and that hit to asset prices then affects spending behavior, savings rates, et cetera. And so you sort of add that all up. I have a, I have a hard time solving the simultaneous equations in a way that says that when I net that all out, it means that higher interest rates lead to uh, more spending, not less spending. Uh, I guess it's possible. I'd have to think about how to construct all those pieces, but I don't, you know, the, 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 the quantities, the quantification of those different levers nets out still to pretty negative in my mind. And I think, you know, as asset prices come down, we'll be even more negative than we've seen so far. Well, the timing and the leverage in the economy matters a lot too, right? Like it takes a while for the government's debt to roll up into higher interest rates, right? I mean, there's most of the debt has some kind of term you have to wait for those bonds to mature and then they need to be reissued at, at higher rates, right? So it's not like those higher rates happen overnight. And also the amount of debt in the economy matters, right? Like back in the 1970s, the aggregate debt to GDP and the aggregate deficit to GDP was very small. We're now sort of nudging up against 100% um, debt to GDP, like just in terms of deficit, size of the deficit to GDP. And so, you know, much higher rates on that amount of debt is going to have a larger impact on the economy than it would if the size of the deficit was lower. But I want to zero in on that specific point, which I haven't heard the MMT crowd talk about, which is, okay, great. The, the marginal propensity to spend on goods and services by the beneficiaries of these higher interest payments, which are typically insurance firms, pension funds, large foreign central banks, foreign central banks, banks, and the Fed. Central banks, exactly, um, is very small. So where does that money go? It has to go into back into markets. So tying back to your point about the fact that a core factor in the slowing of the economy needs to be the lowering of asset prices in order for consumers to become less confident about their savings situation and therefore shift some cash flows from spending into the savings pool. This is a dynamic that may 
increasingly affect the demand for assets relative to supply. So, you know, a, well, that's why it really comes down to this the same, to the, to the long end, right? I think part of the issue is that um, we haven't gotten like the Fed being behind the curve has meant that um, that inflation. And if you think about stocks, right, like what are stocks? They're basically nominal, you know, it's nominal, variable nominal cash flows uh, discounted by um, by fixed nominal interest rates. And the problem is because the Fed has been behind the curve, that nominal cash flow growth on the top of the equation um, has been uh, has been growing too fast relative to the shifts upward in the discount rate. And so the result is that even though you know, rates have been rising, they just haven't been rising enough uh, to offset that top line growth. And so that, you know, it's not precisely that way because st stocks are down a little bit. But like the big picture sense is like, you know, we haven't we in a traditional recessionary environment, what happens is the interest rates rise a lot relative to the incremental rise in the top line cash flows. And that's what creates the asset price hit. And you see that in the intermarket action. Like, why did you know, like bond yields go up 10 basis points, long end goes up 10 basis points yesterday. And uh, and and what do you see? You see stocks go down, you know, 200 basis points and long duration stocks are even worse. Like that, that's, that's, that's how you get this resolved quickly is not by sort of persistently being behind the curve, but those rates get start to move ahead of the curve faster than that income growth happens. And that then creates a circumstance where, um, where you start to see the asset price declines. And that's well, kind of been the problem. Um, we've seen, like, we see that happen in the short term. We saw that back in 2022 and it was a little bit more sustained. But in 2023, we've continued to see a major, like, like rates are substantially higher today than they were at the end of 2022, but so are equity prices, ah. right? So, so we aren't seeing that effect be sustained in the equity market, right? The equity market continues to say fiscal policy is way more stimulative. Nominal growth is way higher and more sustainable than people expect. And so I'm going to price higher earnings out a lot further. And that's going to cause me to raise my multiples, right? And obviously there's just enough supply of liquidity to, you know, to create that demand for, for equities, right? Yeah, well, I, I, but I, but I think, I think a big part of that in that equation is typically in a in a credit driven cycle, the rise in interest rates would cause credit to compress so significantly that it would create a drag on spending. And this cycle, we have something very different, which was initially a government transfer driven, and then an income driven, an income driven cycle. Which means, like, if you think about it, um, you know. Uh, income growth for lower quartiles is growing at six, seven, eight percent. Um, you know, interest rates have not risen that much relative to six, seven, eight percent income growth. And so that's like, that's the basic problem is the income growth, the nominal income growth is too high. And that's what's now financing the situation. Like, I, I understand that the government is running a reasonable deficit, but, um, it's, impactfulness mostly occurred when it created a bunch of fiscal transfers to help bridge the gap between to basically cushion the gap between the inflationary impulse and the point in which incomes could catch up income growth could catch up but today you know 
there's no government transfers. Like, where are the government transfers? They well, don't exist. There's a massive investment, you know, through the Inflation Reduction Act, and we're investing in a bunch of infrastructure projects, demanding lower and medium skilled workers. You know, you're talking about the guys on the side of the road who are, you know, fixing the storm drains or whatever. These are typically, you know, blue collar. They're not. They're not um, necessarily bottom decile, but they're. You know, these workers have very high propensity to spend, right? So, and, and th- these are the recipients of the kinds of stimulus that the government is is currently engaged in. Yes, it's not as direct as the fiscal transfers we saw during COVID, but it's still hitting the, you know. And take that extra income and use it to either, you know, pay down debt or which we know they're not doing because we've seen, you know, uh, savings rates collapse um, or turn around and consume. Right. To your point about the fact that this it's an income led consumption boom. And part of that income led consumption boom is being funded by fiscal outlays for investment. Arguably really good, you know, smart policy. Right. In- investing in at least some subsectors of sustainable, um, higher productivity capital, right? But it's but it's having this effect. Yeah, it's just it's it. I agree with you that the government doing that marginally is is supporting this expansion, but the government is not the driver of the expansion. It's not the primary driver of the expansion. The primary driver of the expansion is continued elevated nominal demand. From households, nominal consumption demand, and that nominal consumption demand is coming from private sector wage growth that continues to be very elevated. And like that's the core. And I think one of the challenges is, I, I think the the one of the biggest challenges that people have, like sort of people who traditional sort of macro folks, is like they're sort of tearing their pulling their hair out. Like how can that work? Like the government, the, you know, the deficit is actually con, compre- is elevated but has compressed basically once you look through the seasonal factors and the California thing or whatever, like, you know, it's lower than it was three years ago, right? The deficit is smaller today than it was three years ago. Okay. Money, money supply has gone down, right? Interest rates have gone up. Credit has compressed. Now, hold on, hold on a minute. Like fiscal, fiscal uh, policy is tighter than it was before. It's still level-wise loose, but fiscal policy is tighter than it was before. Money supply is contracting, interest rates are rising, and credit is contracting. And nonetheless, we get nominal growth of four, five, six percent. Now, how is that possible? Like it goes against every linkage that we've learned over the course of the last 20 years in terms of what drives how these things work. And the simple answer, which is a hard answer for people to understand, is that it's income growth. And how is income growth happening? It's happening from velocity. Velocity? What the heck is velocity? (laughs) Like like velocity we thought was dead, like buried into the ground. But it's a real thing. It's a real thing that you can have all of these measures of money contract and nonetheless have nominal demand expand simply by everyone agreeing with each other that they're just going to pay each other more. And if you had lived through many emerging market debt crises and inflationary experiences, what you 
this this would be a very familiar story it's like well how does it work like i don't know interest rates go to the moon but nonetheless inflation persists because we just hand the money to each other faster and faster and faster because we don't want it in our pocket you know we're not obviously having uh turkish like inflation here but um or argentinian like inflation but but the essence the essence of that linkage is how this works and that dynamic is very similar to how expansions work back in the 50s and 60s and that's why those periods are so interesting uh, to think about when you're thinking about the dynamics and the linkages that are going on right now. They're really the things to study because that's those were income-driven, velocity-paid-for economic expansions. It's just, you know, anyone well, who's seen that before is dead. The way that the economy is traditionally supposed to work. Right? This, this is the actual economy that we set out to build, where you've got workers who earn a decent wage, feel confident and therefore willing to spend, build a life, buy a home, start a family, right? This is the sort of positive feedback mechanism that creates a middle class and global prosperity that we we haven't really seen in the last two cycles at all, right? So I think that's why. Right. But, that, but that's so assuming strange. that's assuming that the wages that they are getting are above the rate of inflation, right? Because at the end no. of the day, it, no, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because because growth is a nominal concept. Inflation sure, yeah. is a nominal concept. But, there's, but so, their standard of living doesn't get better. Is my point? Sure, like, but that's not the conversation Adam, we're having. Adam's presenting it as. This is the dream. This is that, but it doesn't actually lead to a better for outcome. Sustainable for prosperity, yes, you do need incomes to. That's you know that's effectively productivity, right? You've got that is productivity. That that's exactly right. And uh, inflation. Yeah. You're talking about wage price spiral, like in essence. But w- what's interesting about this case? Not a, not a spiral, and I think that's an important thing. Not a spiral. Right. Well, a, a could, dynamic that could at the limit become a spot. Right now, it doesn't it, have it just, such a pernicious it just reinf- element to it. It just reinforces itself. Right. Yeah. It and and, and part negative. of and part of the thing, like if you go study uh, and, and the reason why this is so familiar to me is if you go study sort of classic toy economies, um, you know, uh, I, I highly recommend everyone read the economic uh, uh uh, principles or the economic organization of a POW camp. 12 pages, literally that document. The only thing you need to know, the only things you need to know about macro, everything you need to know about macro and how economies work, 12 pages, promise you it's worth the, it's worth what the is read. it again? Say, say that one more time. The economic organization of a POW camp. Um, okay. And I think it's, it's such a good, it's such a good toy economy. And what do you see in those circumstances is you see these sorts of dynamics where income growth can create can be funded through velocity so they had cigarettes as their money because that's what came in the imf packages and then what would happen is the cigarettes would come in obviously there was a deflationary force because people smoked the cigarettes but nonetheless you could have increasing economic activity because you know one guy creates the tea and one guy is the coffee guy the barista before there was a starbucks and one guy cuts the hair and one guy does these various things that economic activity can can expand in an environment where you have a contracting money supply, a contracting volume of money, you can have an increasing output because the money just travels faster, right? Even though it has a deflationary force in the money supply as the stuff gets smoked, because you can have increasing happy to have less cigarettes in their pocket. And, and they just hand them faster. 
right. they expand them faster. Right. And it's and it's really it's like actually not that big a deal. Right. Um, well, and that's what so that's what I'm, we're seeing. I'm still, clearly, I'm not smart enough for to understand why how this doesn't make everybody worse off. You got less cigarettes. You work harder. You're you're making more transactions. You have more output. You're getting less cigarettes. Um, in this case, you are creating nominal wage growth, but is, because is real growth you're, happening you're, anyway? You're missing the temporal aspect of it is because with increasing velocity, like just think about it, instead of getting, let's just say like one, a shave once a week, I can then get a shave, at, you know, once a day. Right. And that's how you're better off in that environment. You're better off in terms of your consumption. You're not yeah. better off in terms of your wealth. Right. You're it, you're you're spending down your savings. We're not. No, 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 no. Because your income, no your income grows income as well. Is, your income getting higher. You're not saving it. Your this income is this income getting higher. going higher. Yeah, your income getting higher, income. but your but your but your total aggregate savings is is going down, and you're willing to live with lower savings because you've got greater confidence in the economy and you're spending in your, in your wage growth in your, wage, your growth, wage growth, right? And you your spend your wage. Growth. Growth. Wait, yeah. When you say your lower savings, you mean your purchasing power is going down, but because your income is going higher, you can spend like, are you, are you actually saying that you're, the economy currently is getting higher wage growth and they're spending even more out of pocket from their savings to, to, to live you, you that life? You, you don't need to have any savings. And, and I think this is the, the, your savings can say, I, I guess if you think about the savings as the constrained amount of cigarettes in the economy and a truly toy economy where there's money, where your money supply is your only savings element, it's like functionally true that the, you know, the deflationary forces or the, the, in the cigarettes getting smoked means that there's less literal physical savings, but you don't really care about what your literal physical savings is. What you care about is how much you can consume. Right. And so if your income's going up, Right. You can you, like what you care about is the fact that your your consumption can rise in that circumstance, right. not the fact that, you know, there's only so many cigarettes that you can hold in your in your pocket because you're just moving them faster. Expected faster. Savings is higher because your expected income in the future is also higher. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so right. so it, it's why it's why like the save in that particular toy economy, like savings isn't is there's other elements of it that connect to savings, but in that particular example that I'm giving, it's not, it, it, savings isn't really the key element because uh, okay. consumption happens through the fact that sort of temporally over time, you get more activity rather than have more in your pocket that you could plausibly okay. demand into the future. So moving forward, uh, <laughs> moving forward the conversation, because, okay, so you have this. Not issue. what you were expecting to talk about here, was your, it? <laughs> no, this is really good. I you didn't have that on your bingo card. I'm going to read that. It's going to be great. Um, uh, you, one of your tweets was, was that sentiment today feels very similar to mid-08. Many folks creating justifying narratives as to why the U.S. and global economy could navigate the period without a recession. Right. So maybe we can link that what you were discussing with this comment and what we can see in the future with regards to a recession and maybe maybe the equity market. But before we do, everybody who's still uh, hanging around, please do uh, smash that like button. Uh, make sure that you're subscribing to the channel and follow um, Bob here. Uh, unlimited uh, Unlimited Bob. Right. Bob Unlimited. Bobby Unlimited. Right there. Bobby Unlimited on Twitter. Um, but yeah, Bob, let's let's get into that part. Why does it feel that way? And what is the, what can we do? Um, what can we do to, to kind of understand the impact of the economy in real in reality, the impact of the economy and maybe the stock market? Yeah. So I, I think when you're, when you're trading financial markets, um, uh, 
what you want to think about is you want to think about what's priced in. Uh, and then what do you think is likely to transpire relative to what's priced in in order to have a view on which assets uh, look good and which assets look bad? And I think, all, you know, all too often people forget the priced in part of it because they think just, you know, and, and the last 15 years haven't been that helpful because most people think on a momentum basis, right? They're like, well, I think growth is going to be strong, so things are going to look good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think uh, and I think we've sort of lost our touch of saying, okay, let's start, let's have the discipline, start with what's priced in. So let's talk about what's priced in right now. Like what's priced in today is uh, is 12% earnings growth in 2024 and 13% earnings growth in 2025. 25% earnings growth over the next two years, that's for the S&P 500. Uh, okay, well, so that's what's priced in. Now, what's likely to transpire? Like 25% earnings growth coming off of uh, what is a very late cycle environment it, and a significant amount of monetary tightening that's occurred is uh, is certainly certainly would be an unusual outcome, I mean, not an impossible outcome, but an unusual outcome. And remember, in order to be indifferent to stocks, you have to see that earnings growth not just like come in right at that twenty five percent over the next two years, but you, it has to it has to beat right in order to hold stocks in that environment. And so, when I look at what's going on. I think we've gone to a point, I, I guess it sort of peaked about about eight, eight weeks ago or so when uh, I think it was right when that Atlanta Fed GDP now kept printing at 6% and everyone's like, the, you know, the U.S. economy will never slow down again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's never going to slow down again. There will, you know, we had surveys of investors that said like 80% of investors said that there will be a no landing, soft landing type dynamic. And like, you know, the possibility that we get no landing, soft landing is certainly not zero, um, you know, but it's not 80 percent. And it's certainly the probability distribution in terms of that we get 25 percent earnings growth, you know, maybe could happen, could be missing something, could be a shock that somehow is supportive, but like probably not. Uh, and so that's when you start to add things up. It's not as an example that the U.S. economy is like a disaster right now. Um, or the global economy is a disaster. It's just everyone expects things to be so good that even like kind of blah, it will disappoint, meaningfully disappoint expectations. Right. Yeah. So so can I can we shift the strategy and what people can do about this? Just broadly speaking, I mean, you come from uh, Bridgewater and we're big proponents of everything risk parity, uh, but also the alpha portion, right, which is which is an interesting addition to this concept of, okay, we have, we have all these different cross currents. Uh, is it going to be continuous growth? Is it going to be, if, are we going to break the back of inflation and create a disinflationary environment? Or are we going to have continuous inflation at which point bonds and, and equities will go down together? What is a role? So I can see a role for commodities, obviously, from a passive portfolio, from a do no harm portfolio, always be prepared, right? The all weather, the, uh, the risk parity. Where does a multi-strat, like the hedge fund space, come in to play in this environment today? And, you know, is it something that should be a dominant part of people's portfolios? Should Like, are we thinking about equal weight here? Should we, should we equalize the risk across a well-diversified multi-strat, commodities, equities, and bonds? Like, how do you think about your portfolio in that regard? Yeah, Aside from, yeah. the, you know. The trade. <laughs> well, um, 
Uh, well, Sounds I think hundred like percent cigarettes. That's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the answer is find, you know, one deflationary currency and go all in right No, That's, <laughs> um, uh, ask Japan how that went. Uh, not so great. Um, no, so that's not, not <laughs> so this is what I'd say is if, if you look at, um, you know, most investors, just when we should I ask people to smash the like button until he comes back? Smash, smash, <laughs> smash, smash. If they smash it twice, do they unlike? Yeah, that's right. Smash Don't smash it, once, it twice. Right? Just smash it once. <laughs> I don't know. I just smash it yeah. an odd number of times if possible. I was I was uh, about to give the the great insight into how to engage in portfolio construction and the internet. I did that on purpose just to keep people <laughs> decided <laughs> that that was not okay. All right. Um, most investors are sixty forty one way or the other. And if you think about what a lot of people do all day is they like nitpick the 60 and nitpick the 40. Like, I don't know, do you like these bonds or these bonds? Like, do you like these cows or, you know, I don't know, dividend things or I, I don't know. There's all these different stocks you could possibly buy, foreign, domestic, all this stuff. Like none of that shit matters. Like just, uh, just to be clear, over <laughs> over a, a meeting, over any reasonable time frame, none of that shit matters. Breach, breach. Okay. So let's start with that point, which is 95% of the attention goes to things that make no impact on your portfolio over any time frame that you care about as a saver. Okay, so then let's talk about let's talk about the things that do actually make an impact. There's three things that can make an impact on your portfolio, a meaningful impact on your portfolio uh, if you hold 60-40. The first is gold. Uh, the second is diversified commodities. And the third is diversified alpha strategies. Uh, and, you know, I'll say gold and commodities, relatively straightforward. Even 10% allocations to gold and 10% allocations to diversified commodities can radically change your portfolio's uh, positioning when it comes to uh, inflationary environments. Uh, and the reason why that is is because those have nice convexity in the event that you know inflation remains uh, com you know, elevated relative to expectations. Okay. And man, most of you would have preferred to have been holding some gold and commodities uh, over the course of the last couple of years, rather than uh, holding purely 60-40. And I'll emphasize, the people talk to me about gold, you know, gold, yeah, I'm not like some crazy gold bug. Like, I'm a, I'm an empiricist about this, right? Like, in if you go back over the last 75 years in the U.S., uh, or the last 50 years in the U.S., uh, uh, of all the 12-month the, the periods where stocks are down over the last 50 years in the U.S., Gold outperformed bonds in sixty percent of the instances. Okay, well that you know, let's you know, you know, you don't have to get too complicated about that. Like, yet no one holds gold, right? Everyone holds bonds as their diversifier to stocks. No one holds gold. It doesn't make any sense, right? At a minimum, you should hold them in equal proportion on a risk weighted basis. Like, you know, ten percent, close enough. Just get it done and improve your portfolio diversification. And just take a quick look at that chart between gold and bonds over the last three years. And man, you wish you would have been holding bond, uh, gold instead of bonds over the last three years if you're trying to diversify your equity exposure. So those are the main, you know, gold, commodities, straightforward, go out. There's lots of cheap, easy, efficient ways to go buy wait, them. Wait, 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 wait. You're missing private equity, private credit. Aren't those amazing diversifiers? That's what's no, mostly done. No, wow. those, those assets suck. And I'll tell you why they suck. They suck because they charge 700 basis points of fees, right? Like what is going on? If you actually, if you actually match 
the same time frame that you can get your cash flows out of venture and out of private equity, if you match time frames, right? Because if you invest in a venture fund, it's not like you, you can mark to market however you want, you know, at any quarter or days, who cares? Like you can't get your money. So let's talk about 10 year time frames, right? Because that's the time frame that you get your money back. If you look at it on a 10 year time frame, venture as an example, if you look at it at a 10 year time frame, it hurts your sharp ratio. It hurts the sharp ratio of a 60-40 portfolio if accounted for on a 10-year time frame. Like, what a terrible asset. You're making these venture capitalists rich, paying them 700 basis points in fees, and you're hurting your portfolio. That is crazy that you would you would spend your time investing in it. Not to mention you can't get your money out, like the liquidity option. Money, it's complicated, convoluted. There's obscurity. You don't know what the fees are. I get are, it. I get it. That's are, why you yeah. put everything in private credit. <laughs> oh man <laughs> you're forgetting the volatility laundering benefit that you get from a behavioral aspect that people love to hold these assets and why advisors and allocators love it is because the lack of mark to market and the illiquidity uh, is actually not a discount but rather a premium behaviorally sure yeah i mean uh, uh, the question is how much does it cost you know, I'll tell you at 700 basis points, I'll give you a different option. Just open your brokerage statement once a year, once every five years, right? And then you can save the 700 basis points that you're paying to make the private equity guys, will, you know, wealthy. Like uh, that's a very efficient way to do it. Have a capital well, call every uh, every five years that's large enough to fund your retirement. Right, and, and right. Right, yeah. dealing with oh, all those. Oh, cash you're not going to convince anybody of any of this. So let's. Okay, we were. You were at um, <laughs> so uh, gold, gold commodities. commodities. Now let's talk. Let's talk about diversified alpha. Now I think alpha, alpha is very interesting because uh, there's a lot of alpha opportunities that are out there. And like when you look at uh, you know hedge fund managers as as an example, there's lots of good hedge fund managers that produce alpha. And on average, the hedge fund industry has you know before you start talking about fees, has returns that are better than stocks, half the volatility, a third of the drawdowns. Okay, that's a pretty pretty good set of returns. And one of the things that's really interesting, so, so the question is not like, you know, uh, is alpha a, a good or bad thing? Alpha is clearly a good thing. The question is how much do you pay for the alpha relative to how good the alpha is. And the problem with most alpha strategies is the is the managers basically take all the alpha for themselves and you know you're not that much better off. And so if that's the case, if you can, you know, if the alpha costs too much, then it could be there, but then it gets eaten away and the manager takes it all and it's not worth putting in your portfolio. And so the truth of the matter is most investors would benefit from not even talking about alpha at all because because it, it's not it's not going to make sense for them. But if you can access cheap diversified alpha, that's when this starts to get interesting. And in particular, I think the thing that's that's very interesting uh, that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how do you think about uh, creating balanced alpha, right? Because alphas emerge at different points in a cycle, different points in an economic cycle, there are different opportunities to generate alphas. And one of the challenges that many investors have is they might find a return stream like Managed futures, which has nice, you know, convexity to their overall asset portfolio, but in you know three quarters of periods, it kind of sucks as an investment strategy, and that's because in three quarters of the periods, the circumstances are not consistent with generating meaningful alphas there. So, how do you actually create an alpha portfolio that you can live with? How do you create the diversified alpha portfolio you can live with? And I think that's a really interesting question, which is. 
Um, you can't do it if you're holding funds because they cost too much and because you can't agilely move between the alpha strategies as you move through the cycle. But as we increasingly get these alpha tools, these alpha indexing tools that exist, we could start to think about how do you package those alpha indexing tools together. First, the, 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 uh, the outcomes are much more knowable because they're indexes rather than individual managers, which have huge dispersion. So the attributes of, the, of those alphas are much more understood. And then what you can do is you can start to put them together agile. You can shift between them in a way that takes into consideration that there are certain times where certain alphas are more effective and there are other times when other alphas are more effective. And that is a very, like, that is, that's the cutting edge, like that. And if you yeah. could put that in a portfolio, you could do a hell of a job for people. Well, I see you're the same here. Ooh. <laughs> I got some interest on this idea. Bob, when you say funds, you mean private pools and hedge funds where you're getting uh, you know, monthly liquidity or quarterly liquidity, and that's why it's difficult to shift between one and the other. And what you mean by these, um, these indices is you mean kind of indices that one can replicate and put into an ETF wrapper like, right. like you've done. You know, we've done a similar thing. Um, I mean, certainly anything replication, go to Bob's site. We've also done a paper called Peering Around Corners, how to replicate trend following managed futures, which is kind of, you know, if you're interested in knowing how that game works, um, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there. But I think what you're saying, Bob, is not only is it good to diversify across the, those alphas, it's are you also saying timing those alphas is it timing those alphas. An equal yeah way? yeah yeah okay. and, and i think i think there's two steps the first step is how do you create balanced alphas which i think that is because i think the the challenge like you know i don't have to convince you guys that ma like managed futures is a good asset to have is a good alpha to have in your portfolio the question is not is it a good alpha or not if you just if you could you know, only look at your brokerage statement once every 10 years, it, it would be a great asset. I'll just buy the asset, stick it in there. Don't stress about it. The, the challenge with it is it underperforms for periods of time, right? And has underperformed for meaningful periods of time. So people like insurance give up on it right before it really pays out. And so you have to understand the behavioral aspects of these things. And so part of what you can do to help improve the behavioral aspect is by creating packages of alphas that are more reliable then, and, and what I call the sort of balanced alpha approach, which recognizes that, like, as an example, if you took, say, I don't know, 25% macro, 25% managed futures, and then on the other side of that, sort of like a portfolio of, of you know, equity long short and fixed income and emerging markets and stuff like that, and you put that balance, take that as a balanced alpha concept, Right. That is much more reliable. It's about twice as reliable as like managed futures. And so it's the sort of package that could be much more, you know, much easier for an advisor to deal with than just trying to slot in the managed futures. And you get a lot of the other portfolio diversification benefits and sharp ratio improvements that could come from that sort of thing. Right. And by, we just, again, point of clarity. When you say emerging markets and um, and all those other, you mean long short market neutral type of alphas, not could be yeah, it could be market neutral. Could have some beta in them. There's reasons why you might want beta in your alpha uh, because 
it, it's, <laughs> oh, that now, now I caught his eye on that one. There, there's a reason why managers have some beta in their alpha. And, and, and the reason why that is, is because beta is positive expected value. And so if you're well, creating timing beta trend, is a form of alpha, right? If you think about it. So t- well, they're not beta, timing beta most of the time, though, from what I, well, from what I construct. Even structural beta makes sense as a as a manager to increase increase uh, performance reliability. The issue is if you look at like a mutual fund manager, it's like ninety percent, ninety five percent beta and five percent alpha. Yeah. But hedge funds have a, in general about point two ish or point two five ish beta um, uh, beta in their portfolios, and that's about what a good complementary return stream is given the goodness of alphas, the goodness of betas, and trying to create a more consistent return stream. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what it addresses is your point of behavioral uh, issues. By adding a little bit of beta into your alpha, it's like adding a little bit of sugar into your medicine, right? I mean, you should yes, just exactly. have your medicine. But right, you're, right, right, right. It, it, it is sugar. a little more palatable, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not from a practical perspective. Hmm? From... No, you, you're done now. What are the what are the, <laughs> that, <laughs> what are the things that can that uh, uh, is has troubled me though over the last decade or so is the fact that hedge fund correlation to equities has increased substantially even while the beta has gone down, and the reason for that is that the ball has also gone down, right? So. Beta is a combination of volatility and correlation. So you have low beta, even if you've got a, even if you're a hundred percent correlated with equities, you can still have a 0.2 beta if your vol is twenty percent of equity vol, right? So you know, I, I just think it's a, it's a point of, of observation certainly, and something to think about that when you're allocating to diversifiers, beta is not sufficient to determine whether you've got a good diversifier. Really what you're looking for is something that's going to add volatility to the portfolio in an orthogonal direction to all of the other sources of volatility in your portfolio, right? So, you know, correlation and volatility and beta, all of these things matter and you should be looking at all of them, right? I to- I, I, to- I, would, I totally I would agree with that. Rolling yeah. correlation that varies over time, right? A, a rolling correlation that's not static, but rather that it's if you draw the correlation against trend following, that it varies because you're drawing some of your returns from trend the same way that it, you're drawing some of your returns from equities, bonds, or commodities, or even currencies, right? So for for a well, same for equity, right? long short, right? The good thing about market neutral is that you know, in theory, vast majority of the time, except when you've got these major, these sort of weird liquidity shocks. By definition, they're going to have zero correlation to to equities. There are some other strategies um, like that as well. You can do that with managed futures and other strategies too. But okay. anyway, this okay. this opens up a whole can of worms. No, but I okay, I, I, think I feel like we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to our third hour here on, yeah, yeah, uh, right. on structuring alpha portfolios for those of you you know who are who aren't too hammered already to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, raise your glass. Just give me some 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 beer emojis if you're still sticking around. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that I tweeted recently that the, that there's too many individual investors, advisors, small pension plans, and small corporate plans that are dying to run their portfolios like a, like the um, like their the foundation, the Yale endowment, the, like the Yale endowment, right? Which is kind of really overweighting privates and really overweighting. Um, these obscure type of funds rather than taking an overweighting equity risk in general. Yeah. 
which is all well, like, and, and so they're trying to replicate the endowment portfolio when in fact what they, what the endowment portfolio lacks is a mandate flexibility and portfolio agility, something that the average investor does have a lot of. And so the question is, given that the average, the smaller investors have those two things, mandate flexibility and portfolio agility, if the behavioral aspect wasn't that big a deal, how should they be thinking about weighting their equities, their bonds, their commodities, and their alpha in an ideal way? Like actually forget about the 60-40 and having to keep and giving 10% to alpha. It's like, what is the ideal weighting across those those things? If we just think about those as four buckets. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, it, go, it goes to basically how do you think about the... Um, the uh the 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 influence or the 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 baseline need of uh of an investor and that is you know real spending power out into the future in a way growing that real spending power in the future in a way that doesn't have undue volatility and so if you think about how do you put that together um you know from a from a beta portfolio perspective um you know it's probably no surprise to anyone that I'd probably start with like a risk parity type framework um, because I think, you know, that has good reason why you believe that it should be more diverse in terms of a different set of economic environments. I think its primary limitation is it's pretty inefficient, uh, particularly environments in environments where there's elevated inflation, which leads to tighter monetary policy than would otherwise be expected to occur. Um, and so taking that risk parity and then tilting it towards um, diversifiers for elevated inflationary scenarios like commodities and gold, I think, is really important because the thing that ruins an investor is not, you know, um, it, it, the thing that ruins an investor is your assets go down, inflation goes up, right? Like that's the thing that really screws you. And if that's the thing that really screws you, then prepare, then, then you got to tilt towards inflation protection. And that is a big deal. You know, not only does everyone hold 60 40, like it would be better if you got over to risk parity, but no, don't go far. You have to go farther than that, right? Then risk parity. And then what you want to do on top of that, that's sort of your beta portfolio, your structural portfolio through time, et cetera. And then I think from there, um, my my two thoughts would be you want to put in some trend structurally ex- structural exposure to trend it doesn't have to be you know a 236 asset highly sophisticated you know crazy type trend following strategy that you know the most sophisticated managers are running like you can like take the like the four assets that we talked about and just run a 1 by 12 and it's probably good enough and agilely try and move or buy some of these ETFs that are great right you know just buy the ETF put 10% into it 15% of your portfolio into it great and then take the rest of that uh, you know assume it to be clear assuming that you can handle you can handle the fact the the behavioral aspect of yep. it that you'll stick with it um, through time. And to be clear, all of this, like holding gold requires behavioral aspects, you know, like how many, you know, gold kind of sucks from 2012 to, you know, 2002 or to that, yeah, to, to 2022, 2021, right? Kind of sucked, but you had to stick it out because then you got the benefit relative to bonds um, more recently. So a little bit of trend helps you navigate, helps you get that sort of tactical allocation into the portfolio. And then I think a diversified or a balanced alpha which, you know, deserves 
I don't know, 20, 15, 20% of your portfolio. Cause you don't want to get, you want to get overweight on alpha because it might work. It might not work. And, you know, beta is cheap and reliable and pretty certain, more certain, you know, alpha is typically a little more expensive and a little less certain. So, you know, you don't want to get over your skis in terms of betting the farm on alpha. And so that's sort of like, you put that together and you have the possibility like relative to 60, 40 to meaningfully reduce your real drawdowns with a portfolio like that and meaningfully improve your sort of sharp ratio uh, over time. You know, you can, there's no reason why you can't have twice as good a sharp ratio and, you know, half the draw real, real return drawdowns that you're, that you're expected to experience with 60, 40. That's um, awesome. Some of those. Thanks, Bob. That's it. Show's over. The only thing I'll add to that. The only thing I'll add to that because you know what what happens when we have that's that's exactly where I thought you would go and where I think most investors just think if they have the emotional fortitude to be different. So there's a few divergent personalities here, I'm sure, that might be able to attack that. But the real issue always becomes once you put those three things together, volatility collapses so so much that it becomes such a boring portfolio that it's tough to stick to when you're seeing the S&P 500 and your neighbors do having a 30% year, right? So I, I think when you when you create a much more diversified portfolio, you straighten out that equity line, you'll also oftentimes reduce the absolute volatility and possibly the absolute return momentarily relative to the things that you care about, right? Um, well, that, and so that, I, that's why I kind of like, so like, I, I, I wrote this blog, a simple investment game plan, which people can go see at unlimitedfunds.com. Um, which, you know, kind of is like my ideal portfolio for one with meaningful intestinal fortitude. But what I kind of like, if I'm talking to an advisor, I was talking to a bunch of advisors at um, Future Proof uh, uh, last week. What I like talking to them about is like, look, let's not get over our skis on how to do this. Like, let's do a couple simple things. 10% in gold, 10% in commodities, 10% in diversified alpha strategies. What do you get out of that? You can get a... Uh, you know, you can get a 50% improvement in your sharp ratio, a meaningful reduction in your drawdowns, a meaningful improvement in your real, ret- your real return risk that exists, and you're still over 90% correlated to 60/40 on a on a monthly basis. Like, like just do that, like because at least you're moving in the right direction and you don't have all the pure risk. There's better ways to do it. There's crazier ways to do it, right? But but I, I totally get if you're just, you know, you're you're advising, you know, $100,000 clients in, uh, you know, in suburban Atlanta or something that maybe you don't want to, um, you know, to go all out away from the 60-40 and you want to get something with a little less pure risk. And you can you can go a long way without with doing relatively simple things to improve the allocation. Yeah. And also just. Just to finish this up, I think you're right. I think we need to ease people in. I also wanted people to know what the full jam looks like. And then ultimately, the fact that now the, with re- the concept of return stacking, you can actually continue to, to get that alpha and beta return of your portfolio, but really stack a lot of these alphas on top of your portfolio. If you don't know what I mean, I'm not going to get into it now. Just kind of go check out. Just type in return stacking. You'll be able to see it. But th- th- this is a new, this is a kind of an exciting time where the issue of, make, of making a, this or that decision is kind of moved away. Now we can make a bit more of yes and decisions, right? You can buy a, an ETF out there that is 50% equity, 100% equity, 100% bonds. You sell 
10% of your aggregates, 10% of your bonds, replace it with a CTF. Now you've made 10% of room in your portfolio to buy funds like, like the, um, the Bob's funds. And in, in essence, once you x-ray that, you'll be able to get your equity and bond back and then add a little 10% on top of the uh, alpha. And then you, you get 100% of what you wanted and a little bit of that medicine. So very exciting times for, for diversification, I think, in the public sphere. A lot of uh, exciting stuff with the alpha stuff. I, I want to. I can't wait to see what's coming down the pike for you on the timing of these alphas, Bob. I'm sure that something's percolating there. Um, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that. That's where we're going. Is this yeah. idea balanced alpha, tactical alpha? You know, thinking about these things in the context of you know the drivers of the alphas, because that's the thing. This 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 is where we have. You know, I think the managed futures folks have you know, been the, the on the cutting edge of this stuff in terms of this idea of indexation and the knowable properties of indexation, creating an essentially an an asset, a known asset in the way that you know stocks, in the way that you know bonds, in the way you know commodities. But I think the challenge is we don't we haven't done that with things like equity long short and global macro and fixed income strategies and stuff like that. But it's totally possible. Uh, it's totally possible to be able to create this sort of indexation. And once you index, once you index and you can understand the properties, then that opens a whole world, opens the whole, you know, low cost indexing of beta totally changed the way that we thought about portfolio construction. Think about a world where we can low cost index alphas, right? That is an incredibly, incredible opportunity. Um, and obviously, you could probably tell by my tone, what gets me fired up about, uh, about where things are going. We're just as fired up as you, Bob. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. What a great episode. Um, well, thanks, Bob, for your time, uh, you know, on all the macro stuff. Uh, again, just if anybody needs to follow Bob, um, Twitter, uh, you do an amazing job there of educating the world about how to think about macro, even macro guys. That I've been talking macro their whole life. Um, you know, that, totally agree. One of the top two yeah. or three accounts on yeah, on Twitter. If you really I want appreciate to see what's that. Going on. Yeah. At Bob E Unlimited, uh, take his. I think you still have it. Your tweet pinned there of how you how you taught people at Bridgewater how to think about macro. So you know, I'd recommend people think about look into that. And um, also go visit um, Bob's uh, website, unlimitedetfs.com. All right. With that, I'm going to give you a thank you for taking so much of your time for us today, Bob. I, we had a no, no problem, no problem. I, you know, you know, I love talking about this stuff, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. this is the fun. This is the fun part of. Uh, yeah, now, now we're going to hang up and talk about more fun stuff for the next two hours. Right, Bob. Exactly. This time we're going to drink up the beer. <laughs> next time, I promise we'll hear more of Richard, who was, you know, uncharacteristically quiet today, but uh, he was That's crowded me, out That's by uh, by Rodrigo's enthusiasm. <laughs> all right guys thanks so much like thank subscribe you. have a great weekend everyone have a great weekend guys thank you see you all later thanks for having me thanks bob stick around thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts we also encourage you to engage with us on twitter by searching the handle at investresolve if you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next
This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve-masterclass.